0: Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, starting in, one, in verse thir- 13. And I'll read it for us, and then I'll, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we can jump in. Matthew chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan of, to John And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, there is a mystery here that I want us to consider today that is at the very heart of who you are. So, Lord, as I, pray, I pray, Lord, as we look at, at the, the, the bright sun of Your Word that reveals Your triune nature, I pray, Lord, that You would give us minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, and then, God, give us the, the, the hands or the feet to go forth in obedience. Help us, we pray. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again because I think it's really helpful. Take a compassionate doctor and picture him going through medical school and his whole time in medical school, he had this deep desire to go to the deep recesses of of the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. So, do you have the guy in your mind? he's in medical school, he's, he's, he's taking then his medical equipment, he's flying it in, he's correctly diagnosed the problem, the antibiotics are prepared and available, he's independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation, and he goes to this tribal people, and he goes to take care of them, and he goes to release them from this contagion, if you will, And he goes, and they want to actually take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. What would you think that doctor's response is? I hope you think his response is, that's really annoying. (laughs) I've done all this. I've come all this way. I've figured out what is wrong, what's plaguing your people, and you're all ignoring me. (laughs) The doctor has done all the work, and is able to apply his medicine to the disease, but the refusal from the tribe's people grieves the doctor. Okay? Now, I want to drop that illustration for a second, and I want us to look at our text, and then we'll come back and we'll pick up the illustration, and we'll see how it applies. Jesus' baptism, I want you to see this. If you're taking notes today, see this. Jesus' baptism reveals what the Father delights in, and it's this. By pouring his love into our hearts by faith, we are received through His Son for His glory. And if you saw the title for today, I'm calling the next three weeks, A Trinitarian Focus. And, and you might think, well, the Trinity, man, that's, that's, that's hard to understand. I don't, really, I don't really grasp what the Trinity is. And that's okay. <laughs> We're going to be looking at some level at, at the Grand Canyon of Scripture to, to see and wonder and behold at who God is. But I want us to to begin today by looking and noticing what Jesus does at His baptism. And you may wonder, you may think, "Why, why was Jesus baptized? That may be kind of striking to you. And notice what He says in verse 13. Jump down there with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by Him. And the question we should ask is, like, why? why would Jesus have needed baptism? John's coming, he's preaching a baptism of repentance, and here comes Jesus. So we see the baptism of Jesus, and it's this, identified with his people. He's identified with his people. Now, notice what John's response to Jesus coming to him is. John would have prevented him, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, John gives three discernible reasons why it's shocking for Jesus to come to him. So, notice what he says. He says again in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So, the first reason why it's shocking is the person. He's an insignificant man. Now, John, the the amazing thing about John is that he realized how insignificant he was. And John, he says in another place, just a few verses back, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So again, we see there's a, there's a distinction there in person, uh, and then he goes on in verse 14 and says, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me John couldn't wrap his brain around why. Why would the greater need to be baptized by the lesser? That just doesn't make any sense. And we'll see why here in just a minute. We'll actually probably see why more next week. But this week I want us to to consider another element. The second reason why he gives is because of the baptism itself. So the second reason is because of the baptism. And it's lesser by comparison. So we've seen John say, you're going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, and and John's just saying, I only baptize with water. Now, assuming that John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, he would have known that his baptism was significantly less important than Jesus. And he admits again, notice what he says in verse 14, he says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And John recognizes that Jesus was the one who… the the greater should be baptizing the lesser… It's similar to Peter's confession in the upper room when he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus admits, or John the Baptist admits, that he needs to be baptized. He is more sinful than the Lord Jesus. Here's the third reason, is it's unnecessary. So it's the person, it's the, it's the, um, the person, the baptism, and the unnecessary nature, mainly meaning that he doesn't need it. And John the Baptist also saw that Jesus was not in need of the baptism in the same way that John was. He says, I need, verse 14, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? This prompts the Lord to respond to John the Baptist and say, let it be fulfilled. Let it be so now, verse 15, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So the question is, why would Jesus need to be baptized by John? I want to deal with this just briefly, and then we'll talk about it more next week. I would argue that the the reason why Jesus needed to be baptized by John was the same reason that the Old Testament prophets in multiple places needed to repent for the people. It's not that they needed to repent themselves, but they were acting as a representative for the people. See, this this is the difference. We oftentimes think of Jesus as he's this, like, ghostly man that came and he he lived this like perfect life that is so different than you and I. And this baptism of Jesus should actually show us his life was actually a lot more like ours than we want to see. Or than we'd even want to admit. But he's coming and he's confessing for the people and he's saying, I'm 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 doing this, I'm being baptized to show how much like you I am. I'm I'm like you in every way other than sin. Which if you say that, then it's like, well, he's not really like me at all then. He's, he's like me in every way other than sin. And it's like, well, I guess he's not really like me in some ways. Uh, but just like Daniel prays, I want you to hear one, one instance of this in the Old Testament. Daniel 9, 5, okay? So Daniel would not have sinned in the same way the people did. And listen to what he, how he prays. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And you'd want to look at Daniel and be like, did, did you do that? <laughs> and he'd say, well, well, no, but I'm confessing for the people in that way. He's being a representative. Now, I just wanted to hit that briefly, but I want to, I want to narrow in on these three elements of what we see of God here. And I want to start this week with the Father. Um, I don't know if you're a baseball, who, who all is in here is a baseball fan? Just curious. Oh, wow, almost everybody. Look at that. So you all have watched baseball recently, right? Anybody watch major league? This last two years, there's been a big change, and it's called instant replay. Anybody noticed this? When I grew up, when there was a bad call, that was just something you grumbled about all week, okay? That was just something you said, well, that guy was blind, what was that guy thinking? Now, when there's an instant replay, and it's a terrible call, they say, challenge it, challenge it, and then you can like slow it down, and then we can all see how terrible the, ref- the umpires are. And we do. We notice that. And everyone knows that. It's, it's kind of a joke at this point. But, but bad calls used to be a part of the game. That's no more, though. That's no more a part of the game in that way. Now, all the time, calls are challenged and reversed. And I want us to today to take an instant replay of what happens here, this baptism, for this purpose, though. Here's the reason. We see a picture of who God is so clearly here. And if we just, like, if the call just like goes by and we just are like, oh, he's safe, we miss it. And I think that's what ultimately happens sometimes when we talk about the Trinity and we talk about who God is, we, we kind of breeze over pieces that are just so important. We see something so fundamental about Christianity. Because uh, in working with Muslims, I found this to be very, very true. When you talk about the Trinity, that's like, a, that's, that's like blasphemy to the 10th degree. The Trinity, and if you talk to anybody who's a Unitarian, a Jehovah's Witness, um, Mormons, they really struggle with this idea of Trinity. And I want you to see not just from Daniel, I want you to see from the text that the Trinity is not just a little piece that we have as, as Christians. The Trinity is what distinguishes us from every other monotheistic religion. I, I want to say that one more time. The Trinity is what distinguishes us from every other monotheistic religion. Let me show you why. And at the very heart of the Trinity is the gospel. So notice what he does. So jump down to verse 15 and follow along. He says, but Jesus answered him. This is him answering John. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now we'll talk about that next week. Then John consented, or he, he baptized him. Now notice what happens in verse 16. And this is the piece I want us to instant replay. <laughs> we'll instant replay it for the next three weeks, okay? When Jesus was baptized, here it is immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So now you see how quick we could have just went over that? We could just be like, okay, and next week we'll cover this. Nope, I want us to cover this three weeks in a row. And I want us to look this week, actually not in sequential order of the text, but actually backward, because I want us to look at it starting with the sequential order of the Trinity in that sense, which is revelation from the Father, revelation from the Father, which is the fatherhood of God. So the question, the first question we always want to ask in verse 17, which is where we're going to be focusing in today, he says, or it says, "'Behold, a voice from heaven said,' The first question we all want to ask is, did everyone hear that? Did, did people hear? Did people hear what God said of His Son? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe He did. It's entirely possible that everyone around heard, but it's entirely possible that they didn't. <laughs> but what we can say is that Jesus and John the Baptist are who are in view here of hearing this voice from heaven. In John one, just to give you an example, John one thirty two through thirty four says this: John bore witness, say witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. There it is. And it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So, based on this text in John 1, I would say that I think John probably saw. John probably saw and heard. But but I want you to focus… So just to answer that question, was the voice from heaven heard? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, and, but I think John, John and Jesus were definitely the ones who heard. Um, but I want you to notice the, what this text focuses on. Now, I'm going to read it one more time. So he says this in verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what I want us to unpack today. The first focus I want you to notice from the father is what he says about the relationship of the son. It's the relationship. And he's uniquely, he's uniquely in relationship. Now the father declares of the son a status of sonship. He says, this is my beloved son. Now, a lot of times people will look at this text and they'll say, notice here, look, Jesus was adopted. God wasn't his father prior to this, and now here he's baptizing him, and now he's adopting him. Now he's his son. No, 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 no. Ephesians three fourteen says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is not Him being adopted, okay? This is Him revealing what has already been there in that way. And another, another wrong emphasis, people will say, if you notice… Um, verse 17, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then they'll say, well, well, God's actually everyone's father, and we're all just brothers as humanity. That, that's not true. There's not a universal fatherhood of God, and there's not a universal brotherhood of man. Now, we're all made in the image of God, but that doesn't make us all brothers, and that doesn't make God all of our fathers in that way, okay? Those are just two caveats. But I want you to notice this idea of sonship is not something that's actually new in the Bible, this is, this is challenging, I think, for us. And I think we, we typically don't start here when we talk about the Son of God. We don't start with other sons of God. But I want you to notice there are actually several. I want to highlight two of them. So the first is actually Adam as a son. Adam as a son, and he was created from the dust. Now, the Bible says in Luke three thirty-eight, he says, The Son of Adam, the Son of God. Okay, so Adam is even called at a certain point the son of God. The reason he's called the son of God is because God was his dad, (laughs) because God formed him from the dust. He didn't have another origin. Adam didn't have a daddy in that sense. (laughs) Notice Genesis 2, 7 says this, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust, okay, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. Okay, so Adam, we can say, Adam was a son of God. He was a son of God. But the theme of son of God is actually very prominent. It continues to be prominent. So that's one instance. Let me give you another one. It's Israel as a son. And this is what's called the rebellious son in this way. Uh, Exodus 4, 22 says this, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, Israel is called a son of God because God promised to Adam... Abraham, the promise of blessing, and Israel was that he was the promised son that was to come through Abraham. And Hosea eleven one, like Colton read a couple of weeks ago, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so there we see just two instances of Israel as a son. Let me give you one more. Just and this is even Davidic, more Davidic, but I'll keep it under the heading of Israel. 2 Samuel 7.14, he's talking to the Davidic line. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, so we see this trajectory, if you will, Adam as a son, Israel as a son, David as a son, and it's all pinnacling at this point. Adam, the son of humanity, Israel, the son of rebellion, David, the son to sit eternally on his throne, and then all of a sudden we see God say, this is my beloved Son. All of these sons, Adam, Israel, David, they're, they're, it's, it's, I would put it like this. It's like a trajectory, and Christ is the pinnacle. He is the eternal. Jesus Christ, so this is, this is what I want you to know, He is the eternally begotten Son. Humanity is made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image Himself. Colossians 1, 15 even says this. He, that is referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So me and you are made in the image. He is the image. He is the one who is to come. We are the one that he's patterned after in that sense. Now, some at this point assert, like I said, that God the Father is adopting Jesus. He says, this is my beloved Son. No, 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 no. He's revealing what has already been there. He's revealing what has always been there. As John says in another place, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him and without anything and without him was not anything made that was made. He's referring to Jesus there. They're not referring to God in that sense. They're referring to Jesus. The Word of God, the Son of God, who is being baptized, was with God in the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created. And the eternal logos, or the internal Word of God, was always there. And as J.C. Ryle says, I think this is really profound. He says, it was the whole trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. I want you to notice that. I think this is very helpful. He says, let us make man, and then again, the second place, let us save man. Now, you may wonder, well, Daniel, what's, what's the point in arguing for the trinity? What's it matter? Who cares? I want to show you why it matters. If we reject the idea of the trinity, so go to that next image back there. Uh, yeah, that one if we reject, and this is very simple, it's like just a blob that says God, okay? If we have an idea of God, that God is one, right? And He does not have a son, and God is one, He is not a father, right? Which is what a lot of Muslims will say. If God is simply a single essence in that sense, then salvation would look, look entirely different. He, he may offer forgiveness, but He cannot offer closeness, Okay, let me explain what I mean by this. If God is holy and he's just, and he's just one essence in that sense, or one essence and one person in that sense, then he can offer forgiveness, but he can't offer closeness. He may uh, allow us to live under his reign and rule, but he can't, he can't be close to us. He's infinitely distant from us, which is why many Muslims, if you talk to them, when you start talking about God as, your, as their father, they're like, no way. That's, that's ridiculous. I can't, I can't believe that God, because God couldn't do that. God wouldn't allow me to be in his presence in that way. The problem with this line of thinking, though, is so. 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. You have all these attributes of God. Love requires, so that when we talk about God, that God is love. God was love before he created anything. Meaning that love needed another object to be loving. Let me say that one more time. So love does not just, I cannot just be loving by myself. I, in order to be loving, I need something else to love, if that makes sense. (laughs) I hope this is making sense. So God, so go to that next image, if you would. (laughs) Let me put it to you like this. God is one. We believe that. But God is one in essence, one in nature, three in persons, okay? Now, this is only revealed in the gospel. Let me explain what I mean. God the Father can say to God the Son, can he, he loves, He's beloved. The Son is beloved of the Father in that sense. And the mystery here is that the singular nature is found in the three persons. Or as Matthew 28 19 says, baptizing them in the name, the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's listen to what Michael Reeves says. I think this is really helpful. He says, here then is a salvation no single person God could ever offer even if they wanted to. The Father so delights in His eternal love for the Son that He desires to share it with all who will believe. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of His almighty love for His Son. I want you to hear that again. His almighty love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for his son. If God is just eternally one in that sense, for him to be loving, he can't can't bring you close in that sense. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's holy. Now notice, I I want you to look at, so that's the relationship. I want you to notice the quality, verse 17, of the relationship. So, we see the the relationship of the son, but I want you to notice the quality of the relationship. It's the beloved son. And he says again, this is my beloved son, or this is my son, the beloved one, with whom I'm well pleased. The father's expression of his love for his son is the best news imaginable for for me and you. John 3.16 says this, and we gloss over this so often but it is so profound. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It's not just His only Son that was like the reject Son that He didn't really like that much, that He was just willing to give up for us. It was His beloved. It was the one, the one who was with Him before the foundations of the world that He loved, and that was, as John says, in the bosom of the Father, He poured forth And he said, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The love that the Father has poured out on the world is the love that he has always shared with the Son. The overflow of the love between the Father and the Son has bubbled up, it's gurgled up onto the world. Whereas Jesus says in another place, in his prayer in John 17, He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There it is. The love that the Father has always eternally loved his Son has been poured out for me in you. there's a problem at this point. When I hear that, my first thought is, no way, no way. Have you ever thought for a second what the lie of the serpent sounds like today? Have you ever thought about that? And there's many. We could could say there's many lies, I suppose we could say. But have you ever considered what the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden would sound like today? And I would argue it sounds like rejecting this truth. It sounds like rejecting and saying, no way, no way, I am, not I am not able to be loved in that way. There's no way that someone could love me like that, no way. And this is both what legalism and antinomianism does. Legalism says, does not, legalism does not believe that God is love, so they try to work their way to God. Antinomianism, or being against the law, says that they do not, they do not believe God is love, so they avoid submitting to his lordship. And both ditches try to do, they they fall prey to the lie of the serpent, which is God doesn't really love you. He can't love you. Michael Reeves, I love, again, listen to what Michael Reeves says. He says, that is, the father sent his son to make himself known, meaning not that he wanted simply to download some information about himself, but that the love that the father eternally had for the son might be in those who believe in him and that we might enjoy the son as the father always has. This is the most marvelous truth that we can't even grasp our head around. Let me give you another example of a guy who had trouble grasping this. Martin Luther was a monk. And this is an example Reeves uses, and I think it's really helpful. Luther was a guy who was a monk, and monks typically What they did is they uh, lived a life, basically, of studying the Bible and prayer. That's all they did. They just went away from the world. Now, Luther understood that God was righteous. He understood that God hated sin. He understood how God was holy and how unholy he was. But he wasn't able to see beyond that. I want you to listen to Luther's words, what he says. He says, I did not love, this is Luther speaking, of God prior to becoming a Christian, He says, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. And he says, I was angry at God. So this is Luther being in a place of knowing God's righteous commands, knowing how unholy he was, and that's what he says. And then he goes on and he says, I'll show you what he says here in a second. In this moment, at this time, before he became a Christian, Luther would describe that he didn't know God as Father. He didn't know God as Father, as He reveals Himself—a God who brings cl- us close. And Luther found no love for Him. So, what well, you know, what he said he did. This is really interesting. If you're Catholic, you or have been Catholic, you understand this. Maybe he and his fellow monks—this is what Luther would go on to do. He and his fellow monks transferred their affection to Mary and various other saints. It was to them they would love, and to them they would pray. Do you know why? Because in that framework, God's so untouchable, we can't come near to him. So we'll touch saints. We can touch them. We can, we can have Mary pray for us. We can, have, we can have Peter pray for us. You know why? Because he's a person. We can't come to God, though. No, God, he's, he's distant. He's far off. Looking back later in life, he reflected as a monk that he had, not, he had not actually been worshiping the right God. For it's not enough, he said then, to know God as creator and judge. Only when God is known as a loving Father is He known aright. And this is what Luther then goes on to say. For although the whole world has most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind, and activity of God, it has had no success in this whatsoever. But God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. What Luther came to see is that God's word that he said here of his son, he's poured out in his son. Listen to what he says again. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And you know what the father says? I'm giving him for you. I'm giving him for you. This is what Luther struggled with. Through sending his son to bring us back to himself, God has revealed himself by inexpressibly loving and supremely fatherly way. And then this is what Luther goes on to say. We may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. That would warm our hearts, setting them aglow with thankfulness. You know what Luther is saying there, very simply. It's that the salvation is something that is at the very, strikes at the very heart of God, the Father. That the Father could say to his beloved Son, I am sending you forth to die in the place of sinners. That's how much I love them. Blessed be, this is what Ephesians Paul then later goes on to say, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as through sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There it is. And I want you to see this. Two points just to close this out. The Father delights in pouring his love into our hearts by faith. I want to say that one more time. The Father delights in pouring his love into our hearts by faith. Remember that doctor at the beginning? I talked about the doctor that went to med school, gets the medicine, studies, does all these things. He goes to the mission field to save these tribal people. And the tribal people are like, nah, we're we're good, we don't need your medicine. We use our ancient practices. What 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 would the doctor feel in that moment? Man, this is disappointing. But if the people started coming and that they started receiving treatment and being healed, what do you think the doctor would feel? Joy. Utter, abundant, overwhelming joy. You know why? Because he's he's sacrificed everything. He's given it all. Not because all these tribal people, I really like them more than other people. No, he's saying, I have the cure. I can heal you. I can fix you. The Father delights in pouring his love into our hearts by faith. You know what this means very simply for us? That when we find sin in our lives, to run and hide from him is no different than those tribal people saying, no, no, I I don't need your healing. I don't need your fixing. He doesn't delight in that. But what he delights in is when we come to him for fresh and new healing, for fresh and new love poured into our hearts by faith in his son. He says again, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we've seen his relationship. We've seen the quality of the relationship. I want us to look finally at the disposition or the attitude, the attitudinal direction toward him. And it's delighting in his son. He says this This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know, for many of us, when we hear God as Father, the first knee-jerk reaction that we think is, I hope He's not as harsh as my dad, or I hope He's not as cruel and insensitive as my father was, or I hope He's more engaged than my dad was, or what do you mean by a dad? What are you even talking about? I don't even know what a dad would be like. A person's conception of God as Father is all screwed up, and that sometimes warps the way we view our Father in heaven. But when we hear the Father say of the Son, in Him I take great delight, we have to believe what the Bible says. We have to believe the truth of Scripture that says, this is my beloved Son, my Son, the Beloved, with whom, with Him I'm well pleased. Because the Father is well-pleased with His Son, then He will be pleased with all who trust in Him. I want you to hear that one more time. Because the Father is well-pleased in His Son, then He will be pleased with all who trust in His Son. That is a profound fact. You don't have to earn God's favor. Your favor has been earned on the merits of His Son. The father, and here's the last piece. The father delights in receiving sinners on the basis of his son. The father delights in receiving sinners on the basis of his son. Think back to that doctor. The doctor doesn't stand there begrudgingly saying, oh, more sick people? What are you all doing with all this sickness? What, what, what's wrong with you? Heal yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, come. Come, come. I've I've given everything. I've given you my most precious treasure. (laughs) Come and receive healing. Or as Luke 2, 14 says, when Jesus comes and the angels herald, listen to what they herald. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And he is pleased with those who have trusted in his son. Or hear what John says in another place he bears witness, this is, Jesus talking. this is John talking of Jesus, saying, Jesus bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. There it is. So, if you receive the testimony of Jesus, which I have sent by the Father, then you believe God is true. And he says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. All who have turned from their sins and trusted in his name will receive the same smile that the Father has for his Son the Son has taken on the frown of God in taking on the wrath of God toward sin so that we may be brought into the smile of God. Now, I know, probably in your mind, you're thinking, no way, not a chance. And I want to remind you, that's the lie of the enemy. <laughs> Listen to what Mike, Michael Reeves goes on to say. When the triune God gives us His word, he gives us his very self. For the Son is the Word of God, the perfect revelation of his Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This God does not give us something that is other than himself, or merely tell us about himself. He actually gives us himself. You know the difference between many other religions in Christianity? They tell you, here's some knowledge. You need some knowledge, and if you get this knowledge, then you'll be right. Christianity says God has sent His Son, and you're to receive Him by faith. This God does not give us something other than Himself or merely tell us about Himself. He actually gives us Himself. If He just dropped a book from heaven, which is what Islam believes, He could keep us at a distance, we would expect, but He doesn't. The very Word of God, who is God, comes to dwell, comes to us and dwells with us. And so, in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, we see the most revealing revelation. In Jesus, we see that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, for He is beloved by the Father and anointed with the Spirit. In Jesus, we see a God so gracious and kind that He gives Himself to us and comes to be with us. And I would say that's what we're starting to see here. In the Lord Jesus being baptized, we're seeing, listen to it again, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And here again, this word for all those who trust in Christ. This is my beloved Son, my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well-pleased. Brothers and sisters, that is, if, if you're clinging to Christ today, then that word is for you. And if you're not, I hope you can hear, even in the Father's voice there, that this is my beloved Son, or as or Matthew 17 says, trust Him, believe Him, listen to Him. So, if you're not clinging to Christ, hear that word of listen to Him. And if you are, hear the word that He says, with whom I am well pleased. So, I'm going to pray for us Then we're going to close out.